I mean, this is the future of politics uh, around transportation is going to be, does this technology, because to make technology profitable is one thing, but does this technology in being profitable help the community, local community? Yes, no. If yes, good. If not, problem. And this is the future of politics. Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. As almost always, I'm Alex Roy, uh, the founder of the No Parking Podcast, the Human Driving Association. And although I work for Argo AI, I do not represent them on this show. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the Communications Director at Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I am Kirsten Korosek, Senior Transportation Reporter with TechCrunch. And Alex, I'm just wondering, you say that you're almost always, and then you say your name. So when you're not Alex Roy, who are you? You clever, clever journalist, <laughs> representing the forces of reason um, and uh, and common sense, Kirsten Korosek. All right, <laughs> let's jump right into this. Good answer. Yeah, this is, <laughs> that, that is a great deflection. Uh, I think that a couple of things, uh, important things happened um, this past week since we last spoke. And one of them is that we have a president elect. Uh, granted, there are still the electoral college votes um, that need to be certified and go. we go through that process and that happens December 14th. But for all intents and purposes, we have a president elect, Joe Biden. And that's interesting because I'm very curious to see what the implications are for transportation. I mean, he's A, known as you know a huge advocate for Amtrak and rail. Um, having like logged, I don't know, like 2 million miles or something on that service. Uh, the rail service in the meantime has been struggling and um, it's pretty controversial. You know, a lot of people don't like funding it. Then you have um, the fact that he personally, um, you know, of course, many decades ago, lost his first wife and daughter to, in a car crash. Um, and so car and safety and, and, uh, and, and fate, Road fatalities, I think, are on his mind. Uh, he's got interest in climate change, and he's also a huge Corvette guy. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, I, I, I do know that. <laughs> in fact, someone suggested there was a Photoshop of a C2 generation Corvette limo uh, at the presidential limo. Did you see that Photoshop? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. So that's pretty interesting, um, but we don't really know what's going to happen um, with that. I think more near term transportation was absolutely on the ballot on more local um, way this past week. Um, a ton of public transit staff, some which some got rejected, but the vast majority were approved. Prop 22, which is essentially validating that gig economy workers will continue to be classified as independent workers. That was a proposition in California. And the most interesting thing about that is that Uber um, CEO Dara Kashwahari said during his earnings call that they will loudly advocate for that to con to be picked up basically in every other market that they operate in. So they're going to take that lobbying effort global, which is really, I think we can expect many more millions of dollars to be spent on getting similar laws passed. Um, any other transportation related ballot? stuff that was interesting to y'all? Well, I was, I was just reading um, a really interesting newsletter called The Station. I don't know if you've, you've heard of it. <laughs> <Sure>. uh, <laughs> and uh, there's mention that, that Massachusetts uh, passed a, a right to repair law. Um, I know they've been kind of a leader on that already. Kirsten, are you familiar? Uh, since it seems as though you may have something to do with this newsletter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe you can explain... You know, because again, we know Massachusetts has been sort of a bit of a leader in, in right to repair, um, which sort of generally, you know, right means you know giving people access to you know um, data and and the things they need to to actually work on vehicles or, or farm equipment or things like that. Right. Um, what 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 did this latest thing do? Uh, how, how does this move the ball forward? So, right to repair is is really interesting because. Um, you're right. Massachusetts was a leader. It's the whole reason why you could bring your um, vehicle to any independent 
you know, repair shop and they could physically go into the OBD2 port. Um, now it, they're basically expanding the law, broadening it to include any data, telematics data, um, and may, basically meaning that a um, individual or independent repair shop can access it. But to make it accessible, this is the important piece. Automakers starting in model year 2022 are going to have to essentially create an interface to make that possible. I spoke to um, Mike Ramsey, who we who we all know, um, who's Mike. our partner. And um, he's super interested in this because this is basically what he thinks will create kind of like an app ecosystem. Um, and there's all sorts of safety and security implications and automakers have pushed back and said, listen, this isn't just being able to capture the data. It's potentially to also put um, somehow change the software as well, or at least that's the concern. So you can see how that might be problematic. For um, which companies, Kirsten? <laughs> I mean, any company really, if you, I mean, I know what you're talking about is like Tesla, right? But um, technically, Tesla already has an app that allows it to um, cons- consumers can interact with it a little bit. Um, what they have created would be kind of like what other automakers would have to create because third-party app developers can access um, Tesla and you can choose to have like a Tesla app or... Have have you used the Teslab app? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, uh, and for anyone who doesn't know this, Kirsten is in possession of one of my two Teslas. I recently installed the Teslab app. How long have you been using it? So I wrote about the company like a year ago and had downloaded it, I don't know, a while ago. I, I don't know exactly when. Why? Because I downloaded it last week and I, I have been... Uh, I guess one of those people who's been tinkering with my cars for 20 years. So going back to my first BMW, my M5 and other cars, I would, you know, pull out the ECU. I would send it to a guy who would, you know, uh, play with the software to increase the horsepower and performance. Um, when I did the cannonball record, I did it again. Um, and, but that was always um, really annoying because I had to, I had to pull something physical out of the car, send it to, to a guy and it comes back. The Tesla app, has really changed my view of all of this. Because I, I think most people probably shouldn't be playing with their cars. Uh, from, it's certainly not with the software. But the Tesla app shows so much more granular detail about my Tesla. Um, most importantly, it shows me my battery health, which is something Tesla certainly does not want the average owner user to be aware of. And just by doing some basic math... Um, and by looking at charging speeds and times and battery capacity, I learned that in 11 months, my um, Tesla Model 3, which was EPA rated, I think, at 315 miles of range originally, right. is now its battery health uh, shows that its real range is 299. Hmm. Uh, and I think that this is really useful information. But it would be useful for any car, but especially on an electric car. So I'm cool with with more transparency and um, right to repair stuff. So, Yeah. With, and what's interesting about this, right? Massachusetts is not a huge state. Um, they've had right to repair for a while and it hasn't really had a, a major impact, but it, but it has. And it, it's because we live in this, you know, connected world or whatever. Right. So for example, Tesla's um, owner's manual uh, or no, I'm sorry, not the service manual uh, was locked you, you can only access it online and you had to pay like per hour to access mm. it or something like that. It was incredibly restrictive. Um, it, but all you, all you had to do was put in that you're in the state of Massachusetts and then it was free because by law it had to be. Um, and so, you know, if there's one state that sort of is like wanting to push on this um, because of the nature of the, of the issue is has to do with data and knowledge and information you know, you can't keep a wall around information anymore. Like you just can't. If something is out there, it's out there. And and so the the interesting sort of po- possibility here is that Massachusetts is going to be sort of the um the cal- you know, sort of the equivalent of California on emission stuff, where California 
got into sort of emissions regulation before the Clean Air Act was even passed at the federal level. And as a result, they are able to sort of set their own standards, which then the industry has a choice, right? It's like, well, maybe the federal standard is lower than California, certainly with things like particulates, whatever. Um, but like, because this is such a scale-based business, you know, you don't want to, you would rather have one uniform standard that's a little higher uh, than have one low one and one, and, you know, one low federal one, and even just one state. Now, of course, California is a bigger, you know, much bigger market than, than, than Massachusetts, but you know, this is also different because it's information and not just uh, an access to information and not emissions control technology, which is very complex and expensive. So, right. Um, so the interesting thing about Massachusetts as well is that, so there, they were the ones that who, as you, as you mentioned, um, voters approved the initial right to repair a law. And that was back in 2013, I want to say, I think it was in the 2012 election, but it went into, it was enacted in 2013. By a year later, the industry basically agreed to sort of an MOU or a memorandum of understanding that basically said, okay, uh, we'll expand the bill and cover it to the rest of the, the U.S. I'm not so sure that's going to happen this time. Um, I'm, I, I would like to see that happen, but I'm not sure if it will, in part because I think that um, that two-way flow of information, I think is concerning. I think they're going to want to like narrow that. And um, also, can you imagine, I think that, that a big push is to expand this way beyond your vehicle and to have it apply to all consumer electronics and companies like, you know, Apple and, and others, I don't think are going to be too keen on that. So I could see it facing a lot of resistance, but the advocates for this absolutely want to expand that, get some momentum and apply it to products beyond the vehicle. But to me, the vehicle part is the most interesting. Um, and, and I've, you know, I reached out to a bunch of automakers and they all directed me to their, you know, their lobby group, um, which was, you know, essentially like, they they feel like that there's a safety and security risk. Yeah. yeah, I you know I think I think there is a risk because this is Massachusetts, which is a smaller state and and not a big market. The risk is that companies will just you know certain companies who really feel strongly about this, and in some cases there might be a safety reason, right? So like if you think about Waymo, uh, John Kraftick when he was on our show almost a year ago now seems like a lot longer, but. I um, mean, he talked about the potential for leasing vehicles with Waymo hardware, and he said, you know, or, or Waymo, you know, driving, uh, self-driving capabilities. He said the issue there was that, you know, it's not just the price, it's that you need to make sure that all those sensors are calibrated. And so you really need to have that ongoing relationship. I don't know how this this law would apply to leasing, leased vehicles versus owned vehicles, but like that could be a situation. And 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 what might be the effect of some of this stuff, especially if it's something where, you know, um, there's a, an argument for the sort of safety critical nature of, you know, we don't want people messing with this stuff for, for pretty understandable safety reasons. You may just not see, you may see companies just sort of stay out of Massachusetts. Like that, that right, is definitely right. one of the risks of this, right? Sure. Uh, one last thought. Um, and I thought that Mike made a really interesting point when I interviewed him for this. You know, he wasn't necessarily seeing that there was going to be this like initially massive ecosystem for individual consumers so much as um, because it has to be this like open standardized data platform that allows, you know, any owner to capture that data or their independent, you know, repair shop. But he did think that it was going to create actually a lot of opportunity for companies that have fleets. As you can imagine that type of data is far more important. Um, you know, Alex is going to be the type of guy who, wants minutia data on his personal vehicle, but how many people want to do that? And there are already all of those little dongle companies out there that you can get like performance data and stuff like that. This is like even mechanical data and you could see fleets being really interested in, in having access to that. Right. So that would probably be like the first initial application, but we'll see. I mean, Again, it applies to brand new vehicles starting in 2022, so model year. So we have some time to sort of see how this plays out. 
if you think about fleets too, like they also have high repair costs because they have that scale. And so if they could go to a, a cheaper third party rather than being stuck with the OEM and having no choice, they have more financial incentive to adopt it as For well. Sure. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. So you know what else happened this week that I think is going to be, I'm curious to, to hear from both of y'all to see if you think this is going to be a trend, but there's been a, a like, a little bump up of uh, funding round closures, at least announcements, right? So the presumption is that this was all going on during the pandemic, and now they're announcing them. You know, usually, they, usually these these funds don't close; an announcement goes out the next day. You know, this is probably a lot of these deals probably closed in the last couple of months. But I mean, today or this week, I guess for our, our listeners, Neuro, you know, another five hundred million dollars. An evaluation of five billion. They were valued at two point seven billion in February of two thousand nineteen. So they've basically doubled their valuation in eighteen months. We've got Pony AI now valued at five point three billion dollars, and you know they raised um, a bunch of money. Who else? Who else am I forgetting? Before, before we get, I know what what Ed's going to say. He's going to say, "How could Pony be worth five billion plus when Zook sold?" For a billion a few months ago to Amazon. Was I what's your that? what's your reason? <laughs> I think Alex actually wanted to really say that, and he's just like no, no Ed, I think Ed wanted to say that. And oh, Ed has okay. an opinion. Well, no, I mean, I think I think there are ways to for, where that could make sense. Um, I I also I'm not you know I'm more familiar with Zooks than than Pony, so I you know um, it's it's certainly possible that they're at a level that that justifies that. And I'm just not, I haven't ridden in their vehicles. Like I haven't, I don't have a relationship with their, with their company the way I do with, with others. So, um, you know, I don't think it's impossible, but yeah, it is interesting. And, and then of course there's the other piece, which is right. Like, like a funding, you know, venture funding round and an acquisition are two very different animals. Right. And so that could probably account for some of that discrepancy. Yeah. I mean, I've always, I'm not saying I, I think valuations, post-money valuations or post-funding valuations are different than, you know, testing that valuation in the marketplace being acquired and depending where you are in that in that moment. Um, Zooks is trying to do three hard things, right? As far as we know, it hasn't changed. They're trying to build a vehicle completely new, new design from the ground up. They're trying to commercialize and deploy a robo-taxi service of some kind and, and be the operator. What Pony AI is doing is really trying to be the agnostic, um, full self-driving stack system, you know, provider. They've landed a bunch of important partnerships of varying, you know, degree. Well, and also, yeah, all partnerships are, are not treated the same, but... But Toyota, they have a partnership with, and Toyota put $400 million into them um, about, I want to say, maybe a year ago. Um, Bosch, they're doing something with, again, like kind of pilot stuff. Hyundai, they have, um, they did the bot ride pilot um, with them in Irvine. And I'm not sure if they're an investor, but they, they've definitely like have attention attracted intention and investment from automakers, OEMs, at tier one suppliers, and then and then of course, you know, VCs. So they're an interesting company. They haven't been around for very long. I mean, they've been around for I want to say four years. And uh this latest round, they um raised about 267 million dollars. 
Um, and and they, they have operations in China and California. So there's another one of these companies that has dual operations. They also are, um, you know, working with uh, truck OEMs hmm. on a trucking application. So, you know, uh. we'll see. I, I, I'm curious what if you think that there, we're going to see more. You know, we talked a lot about consolidation happening. Alex, big prediction. Uh, I Is this think, just delaying the inv- inevitable and that we're going to uh, see? I think you're going to see consolidation. I think, I think it's going to uh, autonomous. The, auton- the AV market is going to be a lot like um, the internet in the sense that there's two internets. There's the Chinese internet and then there's the other one. And I think that's going to be the same thing here with AVs. I don't think you're going to see... Um, I mean, let me phrase this carefully. Uh, autonomous vehicles are going to, I mean, let's imagine there's five companies globally that dominate this, six at most. You're going to have one or two in China, and then you're going to have the others that do the rest of the world. Um, that's my take. Here's an interesting uh, idea, and I'm wondering what you think about this, Alex and Ed. Um, you know how every country has like an automaker? right? Um, Or two or three, but they're really kind of like national extensions. They're not nationalized, you know, GM and yeah, but they are essentially like, you know, here in the United States, you know, GM and Ford in particular, you know, there is a tie to sort of, it's not necessarily a national security issue per se, but it it is going to, there is going to be elements of national security. Right. Whether yeah. real so, or perceived, do will exist around this. They already do. right. So that was my question. Do you think that each country, though, will have its maybe not nationalized, but essentially it its um, autonomous vehicle company that that operates within that country and can own that market? And maybe there's a few of them, right? But. Um, we, we talk a lot about the U.S. and China being two separate markets, but what about other countries within, you know, the world? So it, even smaller ones. Well, I mean, there's not you're not going to see a native-born, uh, full-stack AV developer come out of South America or Africa or Australia. Um, you know, it's just not it's not going to happen. Um, but you will see, and, and I don't think you're going to see a. I, I just don't, and in Europe, I mean, again, it's hard to talk about this without touching upon you know, <laughs> my employer. Um, but if you want to be a dominant player um, on globally, you need to have global partnerships that matter. And I'll take, for an example, you know, Argo, uh, between VW and Ford, you know, those are two of the dominant automotive manufacturers on the planet sure. but I'm, gonna cover I'm, two or more continents. So I think that everybody is going to want to anyone outside China is going to want to do that or they're not going to survive. Well, but I think of more closed governments. So, or, um, so I think of like Russia, for example, has Yandex. Like, do I think that Waymo is going to be operating in Russia? No, not without making some concessions. No one's going to be operating in China or Russia without making concessions. China, most right. of all. Um, so are there and, any other com- countries out there that are actively working on autonomous vehicle technology that would, you know, put money towards ensuring that they have like more of a native company? Um, you know, so even com- in countries like Sweden, for example, I mean, isn't uh, we why, have there? Are, I don't know. I'm just asking you if you think that that will happen. So uh, I, don't, I, don't. I don't see it. I don't see it. Uh, I would it, consider, I mean, the only market that is big enough that has the kind of intellectual capital um, that one might see something interesting happen that is unforeseen, I think, is India. Yeah, uh, but okay. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. going to be a while before. But having driven across India with Mr. <laughs> Niedermeyer, um, that's a that's a different nut to crack. But look, you're going to see the, you're going to see five or six car companies in the world. You're going to see five or six AV stack developers in the world, and the car companies, AV stack developers, are going to bifurcate, and there'll be some overlap. 
but you're not going to see an American company dominate the Chinese AV market or vice versa. It's just not going to happen. Okay. So here's my follow-up then. If you think that there's going to be five or six AV companies globally, but not necessarily, you know, crossing over from into China and the U S like one on the other, then why are companies still able to um, raise money? Who, who companies that are because they arguably maybe not in the top five in our minds right now? Oh, because the, the, if you look at the, how many the vehicles miles traveled, how vast the opportunity is, and you know I've seen numbers between five trillion and ten trillion miles a year. I mean, I don't know if you guys have better numbers than that. It's a pretty big range, but it's a big number, and no one company. Even if it define what it is and work is and perfectly means, uh, that's a lot of miles and that's a lot of different, there are a lot of different use cases to crack. So in the same way that there used to be hundreds of car companies and dozens or hundreds of truck companies over many decades, there will be consolidation across all the different VMT opportunities out there. In the same way that, I mean, people will attack retirement communities because they're fair they're they're it's a limited operational design domain um and it's it's an opportunity but it's not the whole market and then those guys get acquired and then eventually who knows how many years it'll take you'll see fewer players so of course there'll still be money raised because there's still a lot of focused opportunities that are smaller than the big market to to nail yeah i think what and eventually when we move past the hardware and software problem into the business operations problem then you'll see more consolidation and acceleration. Yeah, I think what what Alex is sort of saying is that with the, what you're talking about, like I can definitely see that the sort of politicization or like global power, you know, AV is getting sucked into global power competitions of some kind or whatever. But like, I feel like that's a ways down the road. Like, I feel like, you know, as with a lot of things, like the AV space makes so much more sense if you zoom out and just think about it in terms of, the next century instead of the next decade. Um, and, and so I think, you know, we're going to see some consolidation and, and, and maturity. Like I think, and I think this, what I think is really interesting about this phenomenon that we're talking about here, where companies are starting to close rounds again and, and valuations are, are even starting to go up, um, albeit not in acquisitions and in, in, in venture rounds. Um, you know, that I think we're, I think what's happening is we're sort of getting onto the slope of enlightenment here. I think we're finally sort of starting to dig out of that trough of disillusionment we've been in for a while. Um, but like, even then, you know, there's, there's a slope of enlightenment and then there's the the plateau of productivity. And I think it's more sort of down that end that we could potentially, right? Like, like these need to be viable businesses before you get to the point of company, you know, or of, of, of politics being a major factor in it. Um, but like getting back to the, the, this funding round thing, like I just wanted to be, and, and like, I, you know, obviously we have 60 members at, 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 at PAVE and, and I also, you know, like, I love them all. Uh, they are all my, my, my favorites. Um, but like, I definitely seems like neuro in the AV space is one of the companies that seems to have had the best, one of the best 2020s of any, I mean, there's also Waymo has, you know, they've gone driverless. So that started late 2019, um, they've had some some big news and some big developments this year, but like Neuro, it's fascinating that their valuation has gone up so much since their last round, which was just last year. Um, well, they're well positioned um, for this moment right now. Yeah. Uh, they they have um, you know earlier this re- year received an exemption uh, from NINSA to be driverless. And their vehicle is a low speed electric vehicle that isn't a like a little sidewalk robot, but it's not capable of carrying human beings. Right. So it's it's a special vehicle that is just for delivery. They've been piloting. They've locked in a ton of partnerships, uh, Walmart, CVS, Kroger's. They did a, a pilot at the field hospital. Um, or the temporary field hospital in California of shuttling some medical supplies. Um, again, these are all pilots, but they're they were working on this and were poised to sort of do all these pilots just as a pandemic was kind of making some people question whether uh, people would share vehicles to ride in, even though there isn't like widespread commercially available robo taxis right now. I think that that like it 
suddenly everyone started thinking differently about sharing. And all of a sudden, oh, look at these companies that have already been working on delivery for a while. And, and so, you know, all of a sudden, all this te- uh, tension went to all these delivery startups. And the interesting thing is, is that they might have gotten a lot of attention, not just Neuro, but a lot of these other delivery startups, but not all of them will survive, right? Like many of them are benefiting from the in, the demand on delivery and the interest in that area and also kind of a pushback or concern about sharing, but that in no way means that they will all survive. And, and if anything, I think we're going to see a kind of a, a big run up and then potentially a crash with some of the delivery startup industry. It, it makes you wonder, like you look with just today, as we're recording this, there was some news about Pfizer's vaccine for, for COVID um, and, you know, public market valuations, which like Neuro is not, and, and I, there really aren't any publicly traded AB, standalone AB companies, I don't think, um, uh, that are like specifically, but like um, you're seeing stocks going different directions based on, you know, the sudden shift of expectation of like, we might have a, a, a vaccine in, in six months um, that could really, you know, get us back to something more closer to what was what was normal before. So yeah, it right. is interesting that that potentially that there is that, that risk because just because you're really well adapted for this environment right now, um, there, there are huge questions about whether or not the way we're living our lives right now is, is something that's going to persist longer term. Right. And it also doesn't, it also just because uh, in this moment, everyone is paying attention to, um, you know, uh, delivery doesn't mean that every company is going to execute that well or make money off of it. Um, and so, um, that's that's another you know question mark. I think that we're going to definitely see some acquisitions in the delivery um, era area because these companies neuro the big giant exception here, but the bulk of the delivery autonomous delivery bot startups, um, the ones that are just on their own, are kind of ripe for uh, acquires by companies, um, by larger companies that are already interested in delivery and logistics. I mean, we saw that already like a while ago with Amazon. Um, it, as the ones that aren't wildly um, valued, I think are, you know, up for the picking. But that's just like total speculation on my part. So, you know, I'm sure I'll be wrong. Alex, do you have thoughts on delivery? He doesn't like, care. Like last mile? <sighs> um, he doesn't care. I cared. You know, something... Uh, in, during the COVID lockdowns, I was in three different cities, four different cities. And, uh, I was shocked at how inconsistent delivery was. Um, it it seems like some folks are really nailing frictionless, um, delivery and some folks haven't even begun to address it. So without naming names, which is, you know, I like to name names. Um, yeah, what yeah. the hell? <laughs> um, I, I'll give you an example of something. Look, whatever we can automate that will, uh, you know, that makes sense, we should automate. But I've been staying at a house in uh, New Jersey for the last few months. And uh, I, in the, at one point was ordering from Uber eats, which charged an arm and a leg for a pizza, the delivery fees of this or that. And a, um, I don't know who came. Um, I don't know who it was, but I char- I got, a, I paid a lot of, I paid a lot extra. I'm not entirely sure that the delivery driver could possibly even make a living or even like pay rent based on doing the work they were doing. And I always felt compelled to pay cash out of my own pocket out of just out of, human empathy. Uh, then I learned about this app called Slice. Have you heard of this app? No. It's an, a- it's an aggregator of locally owned pizza businesses. And the business model is more beneficial to local businesses. Hmm. And I, the delivery person actually worked for the, um, for the pizza place locally that came to deliver to me. And this really mattered to me. I'm not sure how much of that could be automated. Um, I'm not sure, but what I really care about, and I think that, you know, with the arrival of a COVID vaccine, I hope we see more of this, is people supporting local businesses by whatever means. And if if automation can possibly 
interface with locally owned businesses and allow both sides of that equation to be profitable, I support that. That's actually a really interesting idea because like L- level four, which is sort of what the credible companies in the space are pursuing, uh, is intrinsically a local thing, right? It's, it's, you have to have a relationship with the local government. Um, you know, it's, it's, you, you define your operating domain, um, based on a locality. Uh, it would actually, it, it, it's something I hadn't really thought about before, but like the opportunity to sort of have AVs be an enabler for small businesses, um, and, and sort of developing that local community. It's a really interesting opportunity. It would take some work. Um, it's much easier to just do a big deal with a big company, um, you know, like Uber Eats or whatever, and, and, and just provide that service. But like that, that could be really interesting, especially I think as AVs get more traction, you're going to see a lot more focus than you do right now on the question of job displacement. Um, we haven't really had that conversation much recently. And I think it's inevitable that we'll have more of it. Um, and, uh, and I think as that conversation moves to the fore, again, as the technology becomes more mature, having things like that, where you're saying, you know, Hey, like we're, you know, we, we want to make AVs really be something that enables a community um, to function better uh, and to support each other. Uh, it's an interesting idea. I'm a lot of different ways you could go. With I that. Mean, this is the future of politics uh, around transportation is going to be does this technology, because to make technology profitable is one thing, but does this technology in being profitable help the community, local community? Yes, no. If yes, good. If not, problem. No. And this is the future of politics. So yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Well, have we covered every amazing, interesting, <sighs> controversial item for this week? Or Alex, is there something else you want to talk about? Uh, I, you know, in your this amazing newsletter called The Station, um, oh, there, was a, there was a mention of uh, money raised for sensor companies. Uh, one of them is Ava doing a SPAC, right? Right, and then yep. um, last week there was the Luminar go a, a few months ago, Luminar, and then um, there's a mention uh, there was somewhere last week during the the comedic and uh, rollout of Tesla FSD beta, there was mention from green only who's a, you know, a, a, a blogger who um, security researcher. Yeah, he gets into the code behind Tesla. He like looks at the code and he discovered there was something about um, code that would enable use of a sensor from a company called AI, AEY. Remember that? Oh yeah. I know it's Arba. I, thought uh, he said, uh, I haven't Ar- seen the list. I thought RB shut down. Arba is the is the radar. No, 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 no. that's Onyx. <laughs> Onyx shut down. Arba's that's a lighter like, company. Arba is a radar company. That, right. The speculation is that Arba would replace the Continental radar. Right. Right. Um, so, for the Ford radar. Uh, all this tells me that um, there's going to, at some point, my prediction. I know we're not supposed to talk about Tesla because it's so boring at this point. <laughs> at some point, Tesla is going like the next. Ge- in the near to midterm, midterm, Tesla is going to quietly start swapping out sensors in their cars. And uh, and then once all the cars in the lineup have this additional sensor, they're going to announce that in the name of safety, they've added a sensor. It's not going to be a, a, a pure LiDAR. It'll be something else. And it could be something like what we're, we're, we're seeing, like a hybrid radar, LiDAR, some other system. Um, so that's what AI makes, is that is that Right. And it's yeah. going to be something like that um, because once in, in the wake of the Waymo you know, release, you know, Waymo released a bunch of safety data last week, which you know, is more than we've seen from a lot of companies. Uh, but once the, the major serious players um, begin to release data around their, their performance and safety, um, Tesla just won't be, won't be able to sail, um, sail through. <laughs> they won't be able to sail into the future of of autonomous technology deployment on public roads unless they get serious and start living up to the standards, the norms of other companies. And that's going to require, sorry, it's going to require a different sensor. It may not be LiDAR, it could be something else, but more than what they've got. So I'm glad you mentioned this Waymo thing, because I think this was a huge piece of news. I'm not sure everyone fully understands why it's so important. 
Um, I think that the data piece is the easiest part of this to understand because this is just more data than other AV companies have released so far. But I think the safety case was a really step, a big step forward as well. Um, and the safety case is really like the cornerstone of how the industry has regulated itself thus far. And like, um, you know, we have we have VSSAs um, that that you know the the government has created a, a template for, but the template is really 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 minimal. And so when you look, and right now, like at Pave, we're we're tweeting a, a different VSSA every day so that people can take a look at them. And there's a huge variety. And like for some people, it's just you know a lot of glossy photos and kind of bromides, and and others, you know, it's like really in the in the weeds about demonstrating how you know why they believe their system is safe and that the practices that they're using to develop it are safe. I think it's, and and I think what I hope to see is is more competition. I think what, what Waymo by releasing this, I think they did to some extent anyway, raise the bar uh, in terms of certainly being more transparent, but also in terms of really taking that safety case piece seriously. And I think, you know, I think we're going to see more. I know there are other companies working on updates um, to their VSSAs. Um, I hear some rumors that the government will require, uh, will, will sort of increase the um, the requirements for those VSSAs. Like they may well still be voluntary, but I think they might move towards something more like UL4600 as a template, which is a much more comprehensive as a template than what NHTSA has on, on their VSSA website right now. And, and by the way, I will also echo what you said, Alex, like, what what's mind-boggling to me is that you know Tesla's approach to the, to autonomy is so different than everyone else. It's so obviously less overbuilt. Let's call it that, just to be as fair as we possibly can. Um, it, more fair than they deserve to be. But but they're doing this. So they're 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 taking this totally outlier approach, both in terms of the stack itself and in terms of how they develop it by te- by having public consumers test it. What they haven't done is release a VSSA. They have not made the case to the public. This is why, even though what we're doing is an outlier from these kinds of norms that the, that the rest of the industry embraces, and we discussed some of those on a recent episode, um, you know, here's why we think it's safe anyway, even though we're not complying with those norms. They could, they could be doing that. They could answer like a lot of the questions that we raised when we discussed FSC the other day. Um, maybe they have done the analysis, the homework, and 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 they they have a strong case for why their approach is safe and can be safe. Um, but we haven't heard it, and that to me is crazy. It's like why wouldn't they want to convince the public? And unfortunately, I think it's because the whole thing just runs on blind faith. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> well said, well said. Um, well, I I'm not sure there's going to be competition. Or just on the Waymo thing, just to wrap that up, as far as like a competition over transparency, I, I, I'll be curious to see if others follow um, on that. Why don't you I, think I'm, there will be? It's not that I don't think that there will be. I just don't know. Like, I've already been hearing so much about safety from from others, you know, in this past year. I mean, it seems like, you know, you hear that a lot from Aurora and you hear that. I mean, they're always Ike, for example, it's like they, they all want to talk about safety. So I'm curious to see what the response will be specifically with the Waymo release of data and if others will mi- try to mimic that exact representation. Um So it's not that I'm like weighing in heavily on one or the other. I just I haven't seen. I've already heard so much about safety in this past year. Like, I'm not sure what their response will be to Waymo. Yeah. I mean, I look, I think, I think at the end of the day, you know, almost every company in the space agrees that, you know, the race is not just to get something out on the road. It's, it's a trust race. Like that term gets used by a number of, of folks in the, in this business. And how else do you create trust other than through as much transparency as you can. And and yes, like there is only so much transparency you can provide as an AV developer. Like this is very complex. And and like even if you could, you know, just do it without any kind of just put everything out there without any um you know security or or intellectual property concerns, 
would anyone understand it? <laughs> you know, like how much more transparency doesn't necessarily help people actually understand why why it's safe and and why other things might be less safe. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is it is absolutely a challenge. There's no doubt about it. But I think that because everyone realizes, and again, as I've said before, like when you get in a fully driverless vehicle, you're like, oh yeah, this trust thing. Like I get why everybody who's been working on AVs for most of their career talks so much about trust. And it's because it freaking matters once you get that safety driver out of there. I know it's not a Tesla episode, but every time I see a video, because Tesla's so boring and repetitive, every time I see a video of some Tesla owner testing FSD full self-driving beta, and they've got one hand like casually on the wheel and they take it off, they put it back on. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, are you serious? Like, that's just not serious. And yeah, when there's no know. argument to be made, there's no counter argument. That's just not a safe way to test vehicles. Sorry. Like we just did a panel um, last week, our, our weekly virtual discussion at PAVE was, was about safe road testing. And obviously we weren't talking about Tesla, um, but we were, we were talking about the ways that, that the industry has done it safe. And again, I think people don't understand that they've been sharing the road with experimental technology for years now. Um, and companies have racked up millions of miles, and it's not a coincidence that that's been done for the most part extremely safely. It, that's been the product of a lot of hard work and focus and 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 effort, not just on the parts of the companies and like cultivating the culture, but all the way down to you know these individual people. Um, and like you can really, you know, again, I, when we discuss this, but like you can really tell when you're in a car with a safety driver, like how serious that job is. Um, so yeah. What else we have left off the news cycle? Cause I feel We've like we've exhausted. <laughs> well, scale, scale AI um, also yeah. raised around there were $3 billion now. That's kind of, that's kind of interesting. And they're like a picks and shovel kind of company yeah. in, in the space. Um, so we're doing data labeling. Um, Again, and- that shows, I think that there is, um, dare I say bullishness? I'm not sure if I would go that far, but on the automated vehicle technology industry as a whole. So it's not just that you're seeing the companies that hope to commercialize and deploy the technology, but the companies that are supporting that effort, Scale AI being one of them, and one of probably the most successful ones, by the way. Um, And you know, there there are companies that have tried to do what Scale does (laughs) in-house, Um, there's at least one example, I think Tesla's hired hundreds of people to try to do data labeling. Hundreds. Um, It's incredible. Hundreds. And they, they say they're going to hire thousands. I mean, we'll see, but. But scale AI basically does this for other companies. Right. And, um, so they're a services company and, and they provide all of that pretty, um, you know, expensive work um and also just in terms of like just the sheer number of people that it's required um to do that for other companies so i i know that they've done stuff with zooks and a a number of other companies i don't know who if they work with argo but um alex would be the only one who could answer that question uh that would not not be for me to say (laughs) but they but they they work for a, a number of um, I know they work with Voyage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, so they they've got they've got a number of AV companies as clients. No, and and you know you were just saying, Kirsten, like I don't know if if we can call this bullishness or whatever. Like this is something I think it's really important to keep in mind because it is clear, like clearly things are coming back, right? Like there's been a really rough couple of years for the AV sector, um, and it, it, there's no doubt that it's this the space is coming back. I think it's important to remember you know, like get that, that hype cycle, uh, visual in front of you, when you get out of the, the trough of disillusionment, it doesn't, the, the expectations don't go back up to where they were at peak hype. They slowly and steadily trend upwards. And so I think we shouldn't be expecting things to get back to where they were in 2015 or 2016, even, um, that those days are behind us. And, and that's a good thing. Um, I think that what, what we should see going forward is sort of a more mixed thing of, you know, the good, the cream rising to the top, right? I think this is what Alex is talking about. Part of it is the companies who don't have what it takes to get to a a sustainable business model are going to go away. But I think oftentimes there's a lot more focus on that. And, and, but I think the the flip side of that is that the companies that are doing well 
um, and, and that are well positioned, I should say, are going to start doing better again. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. everyone's kind of been in the bunker a little bit. And I think what we're starting to see is people coming out. And it's not just these deals, by the way. It's also, you know, Waymo going driverless. And now a bunch of other companies going for their driverless permits. Like the technology is maturing. Um, we're moving closer to to real business models. Um, and oh, by the way, I, I don't, maybe we should discuss this in the year end because we, we had a, a, I need to go back and listen to the, the year, uh, the, the start of this year, we did an episode about predictions and one of them, and, and this is hilarious because I made this prediction and then I walked away from it like immediately because it was right before CES and everyone at CES told me I was crazy. I said that the California PUC was going to walk back its decision about, about allowing um, commercial deployments of AVs in California. Well, uh, meaning specifically that that they can charge for rides. Yes. And I am looking at a document. Um, this actually dates back to October, and I didn't, wasn't really aware of this. Um, but uh, the PUC uh, has proposed a decision uh, that would authorize the deployment of driver and driverless autonomous vehicle passenger service um, commercially. So it's something that at least because it does not have force of law. It's not a, an actual thing. It's just a proposal right now, but they're at least considering it. So uh, unfortunately, I would not be able to claim that I was right about that because after making the prediction, I then abandoned it. Well, I still think that they have a long way to go. I know that that is something that companies have been actively working towards and that they said that that, that ultimately that they felt like that the, the CPUC would would relent or come to some compromise, but I did not and still don't expect that to happen before year end. So that's a good point. It may well also not happen this year. No, because what that those companies were telling me at CES last year, they were like, yeah, no, that's, I don't know where yeah. you, why you think they're going to change their tune on this because they were, you know, as you, you reported right there, PUC was like, it's not our job to help you make money. Right. Right. Um, or to and- valid or to figure out what, what works commercially for you. So, um, well, we will. That's a good reminder as we're wrapping up. So thanks again for listening to another episode of the Autonicast. And we will be coming to you sometime in the next, I don't know, before the end of the year, we should do a scorecard of how we did on our predictions episode. Mm. And then, of course, talk about what we expect for 2021. And maybe maybe we need to have like a big uh, a virtual Atonicast party and get all our friends to come in and drink with us on Zoom. I don't know. It's just not the same, is it? I can't wait for. Uh, I don't want to go back to normal. I want to go forward to normal. Whereas where when people actually travel to go somewhere, the money is well spent and the time is productive. Um, <laughs> that that's what I look forward to. So. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's wrap this up. I think I just did. <laughs> Uh, well, then we'll see you next time on another episode of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>